You are listening to Primal Radio, the podcast dedicated to combat sports, martial arts, self-defense, and the warrior mindset. And here are your hosts from Hamilton, New Jersey, Jim McCann, and London, England, Tom McGrath. Primal Radio. Tom, how you doing, buddy? I'm great. Real excited about this week's guest. No, uh, me too. I like we got some uh, real winners here, guys. We've known for a while. Or, uh, I'm excited to to talk to these guys. So we're going to get through th- this bullshit in the beginning real quick. I got to promote a couple of things. Uh, first of all, our show, you can listen to uh, Primal Radio on HamiltonRadio.net. You can listen to us on Spreaker, iHeart, iTunes, Sonos, uh, SoundCloud, Amazon, Alexa, Comcast, well, maybe Comcast soon, and Stitcher's still in the works, I know. So we're working on that. So Saturday nights, you can hear us on Hamilton Radio, 9 p.m. UK time and 9 p.m. New York time. Couple things that we have going on at Primal Gym, upcoming events uh, and Primal promotions. Uh, what we have here, as I scroll down my list here, uh, Mick Thornton and myself would be doing a JKDCQ seminar, and that is June 16th at Primal Gym. July 7th, we got a blood drive for Miller Keystone Center. Uh, so uh, from 12 to 4, if you want to come out and give blood for a good cause for uh, uh, the center out there in uh, Ewing, New Jersey. Uh, July 14th, Billy Robinson Catch Wrestling Tournament. That's during the day. That night, the Catch Championship. Uh, We have Josh Barnett and some big-time grapplers fighting. Um, The following day, the 15th, we have a Catch catch Wrestling Seminar. Um, And then the big day, August 11th, Primal MMA Fight Night at the Showboat Hotel and Casino, Atlantic City in the Bourbon Room. Uh, it's formerly known as the House of Blues. Look for tickets on Ticketmaster and call us at the gym. Or you can contact us at primalfightpromotions.com or 833-77-FIGHT. Um, October, I'll be having a program show at the show, but as well, boxing show. And November 3rd, another MMA fight night. Woo, at the show, but I'm tired. Okay, is the show over? <laughs> that was real good, though. That was very Shit, good. that was a lot of stuff. And you wonder why I work yeah. 103 hours a week and, and don't sleep. I slept four hours last night. That's all I need, though. I think that I'm really, I, as Arnold Schwarzenegger says, sleep faster. And then you're ready you, you to go. You could get some voiceover work doing commercials if you don't speak that fast. Do I? I can speak slower, but I don't see why. Yeah. <laughs> Way to put your input in. <laughs> all right. Let's get right to the guest. Enough of this nonsense. Tom has uh, been booking our guest. He's done you know, an okay job of it. <laughs> no, but this week's <laughs> guests are great. I'm excited, Tom. Why don't you go with your professional Ed McMahon introduction? Yes. So, so one thing, whenever I've gone to the U.S., one thing that's really amazed me is how everyone's got a story about the movies. Right. Um, particularly when you go out to the California, it was like, you know, these guys, everyone had been had a little bit part in it. Everybody's in the business. Something, and it, it was kind of cool. Now, the first... Um, JKD seminar I ever went to was in Bayonne, New Jersey, right. Wednesday night group. I'd only been studying uh, the martial arts for a couple of years. So I wasn't particularly good. And no. I was sat down having lunch and I was talking to this week's guest and he was uh, and he revealed that he'd written the film Young Guns, which played a big part in my youth. And I happen to think is like one of the best westerns ever right um my, me and my friend we used to like quote things like repeat murphy from, from the film and, all that. <laughs> and oh, then uh, awesome. i i guess over the years i'd uh lost touch with with this gentleman or or uh, and then i was visiting tim tackett's garage you know what and you know what tim's like he's very our guys you know he's really proud of the people that have gone on to right. be very successful and he told me how again this week's guest um, had written the, the popular Netflix show um, uh, Marco Polo, which right. uh, I think all, all martial artists kind of watch and enjoy. Um, so uh, there's a whole lot more that he's done, um, and he's going to tell us about that today. Um, so welcome to the show, John Fusco. Ah, thank you. Thanks, Tom. Great to be on Primal Radio. Thanks. Thanks, John. Hey, buddy, it's been a while. Haven't seen you in a while. And there's a whole bunch to talk about. Like, right, because John comes, when I met John... You know, you don't really, you know, he's just an unassuming guy, you know, and he's a talented martial artist and he's just in the background training. And, uh, you know, he's been involved in, I guess, show business. All right. And, and we're, we're at the bottom rung of show business. Tom. We're at the first step on the ladder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. John's way up at the top. We're at the bottom. So 
we we thank you for taking part in, and lowering your standards to come upon the show today. So, oh, man, Mike, Mike, pleasure here, Jim. <laughs> so, so, so now you know I was reading I was reading some of the bio stuff, and you know, you were born in I guess and raised in Connecticut. Is that right? That's right. Yep, the small town of Prospect, Connecticut. I never even heard of Prospect, Connecticut. What's that near? Yeah, it kind of falls in between New Haven and Waterbury. Oh, I got it's you. near Bethany, Cheshire, and um, it was it was semi-rural when I grew up there. Yeah, and then it kind of evolved in suburbia. Right, it is. But, That's all Connecticut is. When I drive yeah. up to New England or something like that, that ride through Connecticut on ninety-five is the worst ride on the planet. It's like everyone yeah. in Connecticut decides to go out on the road and mess with me when I'm trying to drive through. Every time I go through, it's terrible. But anyway, so, oh, now, yeah. so now you, you're living in Vermont. Is that just one of your houses? You have a couple of houses. Is that your primary yeah. residence? My, my, you know, my business is in L.A. Of course. And uh, and I, you know, I've gone back and forth from New York to L.A. over the years, but I've always kept a writing cabin in Vermont, a yeah. place where I could go and just seclude myself and get the writing done and train up here in the mountains. Right. And over time, it became the primary residence when I found that, you know, I was working for four months at a time. I didn't, didn't have to see anyone. I didn't, you know, have to take a meeting. Right. And I just felt like I could do this anywhere. So I'm I'm going to cut New York free, cut L.A. free and make Vermont the main base. Yeah, no, that's it's beautiful up there. And uh, yeah, people leave you alone. You can do Like you said, do whatever you want. Now, when you my agents almost had a heart attack when I told them I was I was moving to Vermont oh, uh, no to write kidding. a West, western on spec. Yeah. <laughs> and this this was when the western had been dead for twenty years, and as Tom had referenced, Young Guns. Right. That's what I was writing, and it went out to do well enough for my agents to say, "Stay in Vermont, right? Keep doing what you're doing." Yeah. <laughs> right now, the, the, the interesting right the interesting thing is so what you left home well. Can I let's step back a little? Can we step back a little bit? Like you left sure. home at sixteen to be what a blues guitar player? Um, actually, a blues blues harp player. Oh. Um, I play Hammond B three organ and and the harp harmonica, um, singer as well. And yeah, I I left um, left home and uh, traveled down south through the Mississippi Delta, New wow. Orleans, and it was kind of a a musical odyssey, a kind of search for. The roots uh, underneath Alban Brothers and underneath kind of Southern rock. I wanted to know what those influences were. Right. How did that go over with your parents? Well, not not real well. Uh, <laughs> yeah, my, how do you tell them, <laughs> hey, I'm quitting school. I'm going to hitchhike to yeah. goddamn Mississippi and play guitar or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, um, you know, my mother uh, has always been completely supportive um, of all my, my creative endeavors. My dad is, you know, blue collar Italian American. Right. And, and you know, what led to me leaving home was, you know, we got into a tug of tug of war over the family Hammond organ. <laughs> and he, he wanted me to play in wedding bands, and and I wanted to play the Almond Brothers. Right. And Big difference. That that kind of led to me leaving and and heading down south, and um, I worked in sawmills and car washes. And, uh, Traveled with migrant workers on trains. Wow! And that was my that was that became my high school experience. That's great. Now, what I didn't realize, quite honestly, and you wrote one of my favorite movies of the eighties was Crossroads. That was my first, right? Yeah. And that's now, and that was with Ralph Macchio, and uh, and uh, you know he's what a, a guitar player, and he finds some guy that kind of. Yeah, yeah, it's a. It's, it was based on my travels. It was based right. on, on that trip um, about, you know, a young uh, Juilliard musician, white guy who's, who's obsessed with Delta Blues. And he searches out um, Willie Brown, who was a legendary figure in the Robert Johnson Crossroads mythology. Right. And goes, goes on the road with him, travels through the South, uh, and goes through this, this blues experience. Ry Cooter did the score. Uh, it, it culminates with a lot of people remember the duel in the end. Oh, with, it's great! With Ralph Macchio dueling with Stevie Vai. <laughs> now, did Ralph uh -huh. Macchio? Did were you on the set at all or no? I was. Did I was. Ralph Macchio? Now he obviously didn't really play, but he had to air guitar it, so to speak. You know. You know, he was he was coming off the Karate Kid, right? And I and I like. I'd like to say congratulations to my buddy Ralph. I'm pleased about Cobra Kai. It's a great yeah. series. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Yeah. And so Ralph brought that kind of discipline 
and and enthusiasm, uh, the desire to immerse himself in whatever craft his character was doing. And so we hooked him up with a guy named Arlen Roth, who's like the guitar player's guitar player, masterful. And Ralph holed up for several months with Arlen. And Arlen just gave him a crash course in guitar and got him so that, you know, he he knew how to play what his character was playing. He worked so hard at it. Um, and it was it was super impressive. Right, you're great. Now, when you started doing like, how did, where did you come from? You doing, uh, you know, traveling the road, and all of a sudden writing. Did you always were you always able to write? Who told you you could write? And of course, have the balls to kind of present this to someone and say, "Hey, this is my," because that's a big leap of faith. Yeah, it is. You know, and going back to my childhood, it was really the the first real passion that I had. Um, I, I mean, I, I had three in that childhood at the time. One, one was writing, and I would fill notebooks, you know, those composition notebooks. Wow. I would sit and I would write short stories, fiction, even uh, screenplays that I would then shoot an eight millimeter. Remember the old Super Eight? Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pre video, so I would cast uh, neighborhood kids and I'd make these short That's films. That's awesome. Yeah. Another uh, passion was nature wildlife again i you know i lived down dirt road until it became suburbia and my interest in wildlife and animals kind of dovetailed into native american philosophy and history the third interest was martial arts yeah um, at an early age you know 12 years old um, and so those those things you know all kind of came together because in the martial arts i was exposed to chinese history asian philosophy I saw this red thread that ran through Native American philosophy, and that's the kind of stuff I would I would write about. And so it's kind of amazing, um, you know, that that's really it's what I'm doing today, right, right here. And um, but no, it was my father. You know, look, he was the, the the son of the Italian immigrants, grew up during the Depression, and was just like, you know, this is nice that you like like to write, and your your teachers. It was the only thing that I could ace in school. Everything else was a challenge to the point where the teachers actually called me in and asked me to come clean and asked me where I was copying this stuff from. That's funny. (laughs) This was before, you know, education looked at, um, you know, what a student's strengths were. And this was like, I don't understand how you could be failing math. Right. And you you have the an A plus in English. Well, they're completely opposite sides of the brain. People are usually I find are good at one or the other. Very rarely both. Yeah. They didn't look at it back in those days. So it was it was tough. I had one teacher in sixth grade who was super supportive that, you know, you could really do something with your writing. And so I was I was driven and I wanted to pursue it. And, you know, in every, you know, eighth grade yearbook, you know, career goal to be a writer, to be a filmmaker. Um, wow. But then because I grew up in kind of blue collar semi-rural America. Um, that dream was kind of, I always say, kind of churched out and beaten out. And, oh, no doubt. And combed out. <laughs> and, okay, um, you know, you're going to have to go do, do something else. And I kind of rebelled by channeling that artistic drive toward music. Yeah. And because you know, we had these garage bands around playing Leonard Skinner in the neighbor's garage. And these guys were writing original three-chord progressions, and um, they had no lyrics. I said, well, you know, I, I could hear lyrics for this thing. And I'd write <laughs> them down, and then they said, well, these are great, but nobody can sing. So I started singing them, and the next thing I knew, taught myself keyboards. Wow. And I got into the music world, and that's how it led to me leaving home and going off on this right. this journey that would ultimately lead to my first screenplay movie. Right, now that's great. Now, Tom, you what, you have the list of movies, Tom? Oh, the whole list, right. The whole list. Uh, so these are all just, and we're going to touch on martial arts, because that's, by the way, that's our connection originally with, with yeah. John. It's known him for martial arts. So we're obviously going to touch on that. But, I mean, I didn't, quite honestly didn't realize there was this much. Tom, go ahead, man. You're up, Tom. Yeah, so, so Crossroads that Jim referenced, uh, which is your first film. Um, I saw on there that you actually wrote that whilst you were still studying, which is incredible. So you had success from day one, really. Um, 
It's kind Crouching of like the... Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I think we're all martial arts are big, big fans of that. This isn't in in, in the right order of this notice, order, but yeah. it jumps around. Young Guns One, Young Guns Two, um, Where the Rivers Flow North, Thunderheart, The Shack, which uh, came out recently. Um, I haven't seen that yet. Uh, Forbidden Kingdom, obviously another massive martial arts movie. The Babe, um, Spirit, Stallion of the Cimarron. I don't know that one. You, have I said that right? Probably you not. did. It's an animated DreamWorks movie I did for Steven Spielberg. Oh, awesome. Okay. Okay. I should probably should know that then. You uh, should, Silent Tom. Thunder, Get your shit together. Marco Polo, <laughs> Loch Ness, Hidalgo. I remember watching that when I was traveling in Thailand that's a great years movie, ago. Yeah. And uh, Dreamkeeper. Uh, so that's just that's just some of the films, that's, um, that, I think. Right. Now that's, that's, that's a hell of a list, man. Who would have known? <laughs> I'm no spring chicken. No, no spring chicken. Yeah, you know. So, right. That's, so you keep, know, with the, when you, you keep getting things lit. Yeah. <laughs> so with the, you started martial arts at 12 and stuff, and you did what, traditional stuff, and you did, you went through that route. And how did, how did, how did you end up finding Tackett? Well, you know, it's, um, when I was, when I was a kid, my dad was a, was a Korean war veteran. Okay. And he loved to, entrance me with these stories of the war in Korea and, and the, the the one area that he, he talked about that would just have me glued to him was when he got into talking about an old uh, Korean man who uh, was around the the veteran around the army camp my dad was a uh, a sergeant of, of mechanic mechanic division uh, in Korea and this elder was a martial arts master and used to teach the guys. And my dad would tell me about these secret techniques that he, he couldn't show me. You know, <laughs> just I'm sorry. Just, <laughs> I was like, come on. And, now, and I have to, have to preface it and say this was just prior to the Bruce Lee phenomenon exploding in the U.S. Right. It was just prior to Kung Fu, the series with David Carradine. Um, but I was absolutely fascinated by, by the mystique, uh, by Asian fight science and the stuff that he would talk about, I would not, I would not stop dogging him. And so finally, one day he picked up the phone and he called a war buddy who ran a school. And wow. he said, I've got, my kid here is driving me crazy. Everything <laughs> with him is karate, karate, karate. Nice. Um, can you, can you get him into your school? And I remember pacing in the kitchen, listening to this conversation. He's going, oh, oh, come on. How's it going to go? And he, he got off the line and he said, okay, Saturday morning, you start at the AKMA, the Association of Korean Martial Arts mm-hmm. in Oakville, Connecticut. And that, that was such an amazing sacred space on so many levels. And um, the uh, Sabanim at the time was a man named Romain Staples, who was like six foot four, six foot five. Um, he learned Tang Soo Do, Mudaquan in Korea, mm-hmm. um, like like most of those of the the black belts at that time had had learned during the war and were now teaching. And so I studied under Romain Staples, studied studied at the AKMA, and I just loved it. Um, and I trained every Saturday, beginning in the morning up until noon, and then walk barefoot three miles to my gra- grandparents' house to, to develop calluses on the feet because I wanted to break boards and cinder blocks. And that was my ah, martial ah, arts ah. training. It was, it was in Tang Soo Do. Right. Um, but the more that I, I dug into Asian martial arts history and philosophy, the more I was drawn toward Chinese martial arts, Shaolin, Kung Fu. And then, of course, after Bruce Lee, um, after the David Carradine series, where suddenly... Now, I went from being an anomaly in school who went and did this weird thing on Saturday mornings. Yeah. Now, every kid on the ground was throwing spinning back kicks or, or pretending to know crane style. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so it, it became a thing, but, but I, I stuck with it. And then years later, um, after my writing career had started, after this travel, I always kind of kept one foot in martial arts, um, dropping in in different Tang Soo Do um, schools, but I desperately always had an eye on Chinese martial arts. And in, uh, 20 years ago, 
I found that a, a master of Northern Shaolin praying mantis style was living about an hour away from my Vermont place. Hmm. And so and he had come from Boston Chinatown where he was one of the four original students under Master Poi Chan, mm -hmm. the Grand Master of, of Northern Shaolin Praying Mantis. And so this guy was the real deal. He had started, you know, in 1970 or 69, something like that. And he was now in Vermont um, practicing acupuncture and living a kind of Taoist life wow. in the mountains. And so I went and studied with him. Um, and that that launched my, my Shaolin and Kung Fu path. Um, I studied, uh, got it. It took me about 10 years to get my black sash because that's how it is in proper old school Kung Fu. Sure. And which I really appreciate it. And then, I, you know, I had always had this soft focus vision, Jim, of what that martial arts path would be. I wanted to, wanted to study classical Kung Fu for a long, long time, and then move into Jeet Kune Do mm -hmm. and take these, these raw materials and strip them down into the processed goods. Um, and uh, I, so I started uh, seeking out JKD uh, people who would you know, come in and do the seminars, and I became a part of that wandering seminar family. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I, I first studied with uh, Sifu Ted Wong. Right. And, you know, that's, you know, just footwork master, learned so much from, from Ted, and then uh, met Sifu Tackett and just loved his seminars and started attending uh, those seminars where I met you, where right. I met Tom. Yeah. And, you know, on my bucket list... I've got, you know, just a couple things left there. And, and one of them is to get to that Wednesday night garage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And to, he's invited me and I just, I want to get up there to Redlands. And, but that's, that's how it all kind of came around yeah. um, to, to Tim Tack, to JKD. And it's, it's where I'm at now. Right. Did you find that, like I had done only a little bit of Kung Fu. And for mm -hmm. me, it's not against Kung Fu. I had, it was not fast moving enough for me initially. That might have been the instructor and stuff. And it's this gentleman taught the five, whatever it was. Five, five animals a shot. Right. Yeah. And and uh, and for for at least my with, with him for me it wasn't a, a, a love connection. <laughs> now, yes. did you yeah. find it very complicated? Was it very simple? Did you do like one form for years and years and go on from there? Or did you know? Was he? How, how did he approach well, the teaching to you? You know, the um, thing about the praying mantis style, I mean, it's a very fierce combat style. Um, it's when you mentioned the five animals of Shaolin, you know, this is one of the, the later styles. Uh -huh. This, this it came, came to be during the Ming Dynasty, and it contained elements of many different styles, like monkey footwork, but very aggressive stand-up game, um, you know, elements of... China or kind of Hapkido type, you know, grappling moves. Uh, and, you know, it did have its its soft movements, its long movements, mm -hmm. uh, you know, long and short, slow and fast, the yin and yang of it. But I found it to be very dynamic. And as long as I could see what was what was down the road and saying, oh, man, I can't wait to learn 18 elbows. And I'd watch <laughs> watch my Sifu do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I was happy to work on the nine basic exercises for six months. Wow. Which suddenly when, when we went out to do first form, they were all strung together and I had them down and you'd, you know, you'd learn the applications. That's and so after you done these exercises, you'd then pair off and you'd get the application down. And I found that the, the forms um, were very exciting. And I always, I use the expression, I found them to be a moving database of technique, and that, and that's why I, I still practice the forms every day. Oh, wow, that's and I great. feel, well, I feel like when you internalize those movements, and then you go out and you practice the progressive JKD stuff um, in a combat situation, a lot of those classical techniques will come down, you know, come out, but you know, with economy of movement and, and through a JKD approach. Right. So when you studied the JKD with Tackett and Wong, did you find 
those techniques transferable? That we able to still use them? Did you look at them in a different light? Yeah, I did. You know, and it's interesting that you you bring that up, Jim, because when I tested for my black sash, I had a spar against a senior black belt, mm-hmm. and um, I was using. I already started studying JKD. Yeah, and so I used I used a lot of JKD elements that I felt um, translated beautifully to praying mantis or vice versa, because right. I understand that, that Bruce Lee early on in his American studies studied mantis for about a year. Um, and you know, for instance, Pak Sal, you know, the, that's, that's a, a natural movement in the old uh, uh, praying mantis, which in its origins was called secret hands at Shaolin temple. Mm. And there's the mantis, there's a lot of slapping, you know, intercepting, you know, and so um, I felt like it was a, a good fit. And I had also gone to Hawaii to work with Burton Richardson. Oh, yeah, Burton's great, yeah. Right. And, and I went to Burton, and I showed him my classical praying mantis, and I said, can you help me strip this down? Um, and what he would do is he'd look at different movements and say, wow, what's, what's the application in the, in the classical uh, text? And I'd show him, and he'd say, well, here's how you could use that in a real combat situation. Oh, without, having, without having to drop back into a Jackie Chan flamboyant stance. Sure. You just go from here to here, use that mantis move. He'd see something and say, oh, God, I love that. I love that gal where you, you know, you protect the center line and intercept. But now you can kind of use that to throw your opponent off balance, get your body weight on them. And so that was really um, enlightening for me to spend that time with Burton. And I think that it's kind of where I am right now is to continue to strip down praying mantis, keeping that as my core system, but applying uh, JKD right. philosophy to it. Not as, nice. How are you, how are you, because you got so much going on. You got the, the screenplay, the movies, your, uh, your Netflix show, Marco Polo, which is excellent, by the way. And uh, how are you managing what to do? I mean, when you get, is there a routine? Uh, you get up and you, you practice this, you do this, you meditate, you work yeah. out. I mean, how do you go about your day? You know, I think that when I, when I talk to young writers and they ask me, you know, what my habits are and, and what advice can I give, you know, I, I always speak of discipline. And, you know, I'm up before 5 a.m. and I start, I start with some Tai Chi uh, and some seated meditation, some Zazen. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of access the creative place. And then I write for three or four hours. It used to be eight or nine hours, but I now have the writing to a place where I can accomplish just as much in a shorter time. Yeah. And then by late morning um, through the afternoon, I dedicate that time to training. Oh, and, wow. Um, Every day for the most part. Yeah. And as I'm speaking with you now, I'm looking out at my – I have a, a training area out in my yard yeah. where I have he- heavy bags, a mook jong. <laughs> um, nice. I've got, yeah, have my area and uh, some workout equipment. And I'll go out and I, I kind of plan it and I'll say, okay, um, this, I, I love themes. That's part of the discipline in my training. I'll say yeah. this week, this is my training theme. Oh, this is what I'm going to work on. This is what I think needs work. I'm going to work on speed. And what can I do from the, the, the bag of Kung Fu licks you know, where speed is a key component. And, and I do drills up and down the yard. Um, I, I miss a sparring partner. I really do. Um, and that's why I love the JKD uh, clinics. And, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. To get in there, really put, put the stuff to the test. But, yeah, and when I travel, and which is a lot, right. um, what I love to do is is look for martial arts connections of the places I'm going to. And I'll, I'll kind of dig in in advance. I'll reach out through the, the Wulin, through the kind of martial arts brotherhood, mm-hmm. and say, hey, does anyone know anyone in Johor Bahru, Malaysia? Mm. <laughs> My <Yeah>. Uncle Phil. <laughs> yeah, and or, or state to state. You know, right. I love when I go out to L.A. and people say, oh, I know you live in Vermont, so you must not like L.A. Like, no, man, I love it. I love, and I love to go out there and... Um, work with different martial artists because 
God, it's a treasure trove out there. It is, and there's a lot yeah. of fantastically talented guys out there. John, spe speaking of like working with different martial artists, so you've obviously worked with the likes of Jet Li and Jackie Chan. Do yes. You, do you get a real opportunity to like say work out with those guys? You know, do, do you do you interact around what the fighting scenes might look like and things like that? Yes. Yeah. It's that's a really interesting question, Tommy. Um, when I when I write a martial arts script. I like to write the fights out. And, you know, you hear writers will always say, never do that. You know, you just, you know, put in a, a kind of general fighting instruction. That's for the stunt coordinator. But I love, I love writing out the fights with actual techniques, the way I would see it going down, while revealing something about the characters involved and what's at stake. But I also have developed over the years a kind of metric cadence to writing out fight scenes. So it reads like a kind of, I don't know, but in a kind of a tone poem with this, this alliteration and, and tempo. And that, so you draw people into the cadence of the fight. So they actually experience it in real time as they're reading. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, my wife will say her eyes always glass over, you know, through fight scenes when she's got to read about it or whatever. She's like, you make it really interesting because yeah. You're saying something about character. Well, so to flash forward to my screenplay, The Forbidden Kingdom, um, I was so thrilled that that we got Master Wu Ping. Um, he is, you know, Wu Ping goes back to the original Shaw Brothers movies. He's kind of the, if not the, the grandfather, the godfather of the genre, of the Wuja film genre, the old Golden Harvest stuff. Mm -hmm. Master choreographer, he created the Crouching Tiger style of of martial arts wire work. And he's a master of several different Kung Fu styles. Well, when I had the first sit-down meeting with him, he speaks no English. He was speaking Cantonese, going through my script. He looked at me. He was chewing on a toothpick. He spoke Cantonese, and the translator said, Master says in most scripts he's, he gets, the writers write, and now they fight. Yeah. Said, yeah. <laughs> You're telling me what weapons each character uses. And I sat there and I said, Sifu, no disrespect. And he said, no, no, I like it. Right. Hun Hao. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So then I started hanging around the stunt tent, which is my favorite place to be on a set. Yeah. And I was working out with Jet Li's guys. I was working out with Jackie's guys. And um, they were all, they all found it really um, at first amusing, and then they re they really welcomed me in to see a, a white American doing what they called old school Shaolin. Nice. Because, you know, a lot of people will, will tell you that um, in many ways there's more authentic Shaolin in the U.S., in Europe right now really? than you'll find in China. Why is that? Where, the other, you know, at, during the Mao period, you yeah. know, the... the, the Spiritual components of of Shaolin Kung Fu were frowned upon, and wushu became the kind of national sport. I gotcha. And it's like Shaolin's got too much, you know, uh, Buddhist and Taoist layers. Oh, I, yeah, we're interesting. Arms, and we're going to do wushu. That's going to be practical, you know, secular um, martial arts for for the nation. Yeah. Um, a lot a lot of the masters who kind of left. I mean, my grandmaster of the Mantis style, Poi Chan, like swam from Hong Kong. Um, you know, the there was this this migration here, and, and that's where a lot of the, the traditions have survived. So there I am in the stunt tent with these Chinese martial artists, and I'm doing um, the old traditional Walloom style Kung Fu. And so they told Wu Ping, and he came down to watch me. I remember I was doing a form one day, and I looked, and he's leaning in the corner, working the pick in his mouth. Wow. <laughs> yeah. He really liked it. And so um, now Jet and I, we had a friendship going back to the development of the script. And we met in Hong Kong, and I sat with him, and um, I let him know about my background and enthusiasm for this stuff. And he, he, he loved where I was coming from, and he said, we could do something really special we could do a family movie that introduces 
a new generation um, to martial arts action film while digging into certain Buddhist ideas and the body of Chinese literature that informs martial arts films. And so Jet was a real partner. And yeah, we did get to, I think, you know, I was very humbled when he, he spoke in an interview and, and he called me his sparring partner. Oh, that's and, great. That's awesome. Um, but we we had spent, you know, it, was, it took us three years to get it going. And then there we were in China together. Um, most of what I learned from Jet was in the area of Zazen meditation as related to, to martial arts. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and... and um, I spent a lot of time with Jackie. It was, and that was let's just like those guys were just like their characters in the movie. Yeah, you know, Jet, Jet was the total monk. You know, I, I'd go to, he'd meet me in a park, and he'd be sitting in the corner with his prayer beads, <laughs> and and he, you asked right. you asked a question, he'd have he'd think about it, he'd contemplate that question for a very long time, really, and mm. an, give you his answer, and. Um, and it was it was phenomenal. I mean, he's the real deal. Um, and, you know, nighttime, forget it. He's gone. You won't see him. Right. Um, he's, he stays alone. He meditates all the time when he's not doing humanitarian work. Um, I I would love, you know, when we were out in the Gobi Desert and he was warm practicing under a tarp and I'd come and say, Jet, what is that? What is that? And he said, oh, yeah. And he, I could get a point. I could him demonstrating, feeling and. Um, working with me on techniques. Um, and then Jackie, on the other hand, I spent my time, most of my time with Jackie in his Jackie Chan sports car uh, <laughs> in Hong Kong. I mean, he had a Jackie Chan sports car, Jackie Chan Shiraz wine, um, his Jackie Chan coffee, his, his empire. And the guy is just like nonstop energy and always going, going, going. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we went out and explored Hong Kong together. I learned, I did learn stuff from Jackie. Um, it's, it's kind of amusing because I'd see Jackie and Jet sitting under a tarp in the Gobi Desert and Jet talking to him about fi- finding emptiness mm. and about what is what is the way in Buddhism and all this stuff. And I'd see Jackie telling him that Jackie would walk out and look at me and roll his eyes and say, He's giving me a headache. <laughs> That's great story, John. Just just going back to those two th- those two films, like they they felt to me like a bit of a landmark in that I I think they opened up that those films w- were taken on and watched on mass around the around the globe with you know a Chinese cast. Chinese production, I think, for the most part. I, th- I, th- I believe Crouching Tiger probably, won, I think, won a, um, an Oscar at the time. Um, like looking back, how, how you know how, your role being involved in that as as a Westerner, how how were you received over there? How how much of a difference do you think you made to maybe make, bringing these Chinese large scale productions to the rest of the world? Well, you know, the the Forbidden Kingdom um, was the the first. Um, successful U.S.-China co-production, mm. and so that that kind of opened opened it up. Um, in the beginnings, it was uh, it was very difficult, uh, especially on the the creative, the writing side of it, because um, when you're dealing with Chinese myth and legend, and you want to make it accessible to the world, very very tricky because there's just a different Asian sensibility. For instance, the character, the Monkey King, who was like the all-time Chinese folk legend slash superhero. Mm. Um, and Jet Li plays the Monkey King in the Forbidden Kingdom. Um, you know, that character, um, he, he's a hero. He goes out to save the world, but then he does some really rebellious, crazy stuff. The Chinese audiences love it and they laugh at it. And I had Amer- you know, American producers going, so the Monkey King is good, right? I said, right. He goes, but then he's, but then he's bad. I'm like, right, right. So it's, it's not, it's not black, black and white. Um, and there's this, this, the, the monkey king is constantly trying to, to check himself and giving, given into this kind of, this, his heart and following desire and trying to find ways to control emotion 
Um, and it's it's deep stuff. And, and on the surface, a, an American audience might look at it and say, that's just very weird and, and can sometimes feel childish, when really it's a lot deeper than than most like Western narrative. And um, mm. when you get into, you know, when you talk about 4,000 years of, of Chinese spirituality and, and history and all these stories. Um, so so that the hardest part as a writer was to make it work, to, to be a bridge, um, to, to kind of be a Marco Polo mm. um, uh, in, in that world. And I think because I practice martial arts with sincerity um, and um, had such a, a love for the old traditions that it was respected and I was kind of brought into the fold. Yeah. But, you know, there, there are a lot of, lot of bumps along the way. Sure, sure. I, I, I like the way you've referred to yourself as a sort of Marco Polo there. And <laughs> did that play any role in, in the film? I, I read somewhere that um, you and your son uh, rode across Mongolia and that, that sort of influenced Marco Polo as a show. But is that how you kind of see yourself a little bit? You know, um, I, I, it's, kind of, it's kind of worked out that way. Um, because, you know, well, first of all, that Mongolia trip, it, that, that happened during the Forbidden Kingdom. When I was in China, in Beijing, um, shooting the movie, and it was a very long shoot, like four months in China. And I was, um, by the way, I was studying um, uh, traditional Chinese boxing at night, and then going to the set in the morning, I'd found a local, well, like, actually, local Sifu found me in the park. The Temple of Heaven Park doing Shaolin, and we became friends. So he kind of took me under his wing. And I got to start with him. And, but during that time in China, my son called me and he said, You know how I've been talking about riding in Mongolia horseback since I was five years old? I said, Yep. He goes, Well, now I'm 13. You've been saying we're going to do it someday. Uh, I'm looking uh. at the map. You are right now in Beijing. You're a 55-minute flight away from Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. Yeah, yeah. Why go do it? Why don't we go do it? So I got off the phone and I told the producer on the film, who's a longtime friend of mine, he said, you know what, man, this time's not going to come around again. That's your kid. Right. You wrote this movie, The Forbidden Kingdom, for him, um, based on a bedtime story you made up to teach him about martial arts. Wow. You take, take, take your kid and go to Mongolia and do this trip. I've got the set covered. So my son flew out to Beijing. I, w I went through film contacts and found a Mongolian guide who specialized in taking journalists off the beaten track to go right. find shaman in the taiga forest and stuff like that. It wasn't a, a, a cushy right. tourist trip. It was the real deal. Uh, that, that's what my son wanted. So, yeah, we, we, uh, we went up to Mongolia. Um, two weeks, we rode across Mongolia, across central Mongolia. Got into all kinds of adventures. My son has been a a Mongol Empire fanatic since childhood, mm -hmm. and he wanted to follow the Chinggis Khan trail, which we did. Mm -hmm. And along that trail, I kept coming across the name Marco Polo, and I realized how in in the U.S. Marco Polo is a, a swimming pool game for kids. <laughs> Tom, and do you know that? I didn't know that. No, yeah, no. yeah. It's a game that so, kids play. Yeah. It'll drive you nuts sitting yeah, by the will. pool. Uh, and the and literally some really smart uh, writers in Hollywood with expensive educations, you know, would later tell me that was the scope of their knowledge on Marco Polo. Really, it's like a swimming pool game, and I really don't know what he did. He brought macaroni back to you know, <laughs> craft yeah. macaroni and cheese. <laughs> I found that in Mongolia and China, I mean, he was idolized and respected wow. for being a bridge, for being a non-judgmental traveler who went to the East and unlike his father and uncle who were merchants and looking for <clears throat> trade routes to be opened on the Silk Road, Marco was interested in the people, in, in the, the atmosphere, in, in the technology, in the, the, the rituals and religions and history and, and the women. He was, that was a big one for Marco Polo. And he wrote, came back and he... He wrote about this stuff. Um, so 
while I was out there learning more about Marco Polo, I felt, you know, there's a great series here. This is at a time where there's we're entering the second golden age of television, where there's better material being made for TV and streaming than there is in the feature market, in the cinemas. Um, and so I had quite a few people um, wanting to, wanting me to make that transition, or at least to explore it. And I felt a Marco Polo series that could incorporate authentic martial arts, because I had learned that Marco was, when he came of age amongst the Mongols, he was trained um, in the scholar warrior tradition, where he had a tutor for everything, for mm -hmm. archery, horsemanship, letters, languages, combat arts. In Marco's writings, he references boxing. So did Marco, Marco Polo learn Asian combat arts? Yes, he did. And I felt if we can take that and run with it and create a, um, an, an epic series that really captures the scope of Marco Polo's story because he was there for 17 years. So that's it all started in, in that, with that Mongolia trip. And for, fortunately, I was able to pitch it and sell it and set it up. Yeah, wow, that's awesome. It's a great show. It is, it is a fantastic show. Now, um, you work. What are you working on now? You got new product. Marco Polo. Is, that's now. Is that still going on? Or is that is the series nope. finished? Marco Polo had went for two seasons, right? And a special episode, uh, all dedicated to Hundred Eyes, the blind martial arts master. Uh -huh. Which, if no one has seen it, um, I would love for you to check it out. It's it's like a, a twenty eight minute special episode about the origins of Hundred Eyes and how he became blind. Oh, wow. And Tom Wu, Tom Wu is a master martial artist, tournament fighter, incredible mm. martial arts history, and he, he brought such life to the Hundred Eyes character. So we basically had 21 episodes, and because it was so involved to produce, yeah. and at the time it was the most expensive show um, Netflix ever did, one of the most expensive shows in uh, TV history. No doubt. And because it, it I mean, every, those, those costumes were hand-stitched. We brought you know, mounted archers in Mongolia. I mean, everything was, was authentic, and it took so much time in prep and to do that show right, because I feel every episode is a movie in that I series. I agree, it's, it's great. It's got the scope. Um, the time in between seasons took so long that... Um, you know, Netflix was having having a problem with trying <laughs> sure. to budget because it's like, man, you know, we're, we're, we're now seeing that we could do a show like Stranger Things, produce it in-house, and it's our show. We control it. Um, after two seasons, Netflix put it back to me and a, a guy named Harvey Weinstein. Oh, um, very popular guy. And we tried to negotiate our licensing deal. Um, Harvey made that very complicated, I, I, I won't lie. And so I think that led to the cancellation right. of the series. But, wow, man, what an experience. And oh, talking about great. stunt tents, we had martial artists from 17 different countries in that tent. Nice. I wow. Mean, there was Brazilian jiu-jitsu. We had Japanese uh, martial artists uh, from all over China, Silat from Malaysia, mm -hmm. um, fencers, uh, every kind of weapon you could imagine. And when I, whenever I went missing on the set, everybody would say, check the stunt tent. Ah, and I'd usually be in there. And I, I there and it was during that period, three years, I really got to spar and try out a lot of stuff with some bad boys. And um, that's what I did on weekends. The rest of the crew would go to Singapore and, and you know, go find nightlife and, and decompress. <laughs> sure. I, I always, during the week, I would find someone and I'd go to my stunt coordinator and say, um, that guy, that guy who's doing that, that, uh, that strange um, tiger style, that hangar, can I have him on Saturday? Ah. He's like, absolutely. <laughs> go and say the boss, the boss wants you in the tent on Saturday. Oh, the day work. <laughs> Get some training in. Yep. They That's didn't awesome. turn the AC on on Saturday, so yeah. we're in Malaysia. It's like 111, oh. and we're doing Tiger versus Mantis and Jeet Kune Do stuff and Wing Chun. So it, it was like 
And you can imagine, Jim, you know, to be a martial arts enthusiast and yeah. to be surrounded by that. That's awesome. Very awesome. Um, it was really cool. The, 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 uh, John, the Highwayman, that's, that's your current project. Is that right? Is that, is that something we should all be looking out for? Yes. Um, I just wrapped that in New Orleans. And um, it's the true story set in 1934 about two retired Texas Rangers who were drawn out of retirement um, when uh, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI failed at capturing Bonnie and Clyde. Oh, okay. And after a two-year rampage, they were able to lure these two Texas Rangers out to take up the hunt. These guys had to make the transition from horse and Winchester to 1934 Ford V8 and machine rifles and entered the gangster world. A true story, it's the flip side of the Bonnie and Clyde mythology that few people know about. Yeah, I've never heard about this. And look, and, look, and I know that, that the Bonnie and Clyde movie that we all love with Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty, yeah. that's a watershed moment in cinema, one of my favorite movies of all time. But they vilified Frank Hamer, the Texas Ranger, in that movie. His family sued Warner Brothers, oh, wow. one of our settlement. And I tracked down the family and said, it's time that Frank Hamer gets his due and gets mm. the respect, and we tell the true story. So I got the blessing of the Hamer family. Mm, nice. um, it's taken me 15 years to get it to the screen. Holy at shit. One point, yep, at one point, <laughs> we had Robert Newton attached to play the guys. And so I was working with Redford and Newton. This was going to be their trifecta after Butch and Sundance and The Sting. Um, and then Paul uh, became ill, sadly, uh -huh. and we lost such a great, great actor right. and humanitarian. Um, but 15 years later, Kevin Costner and Woody Harrelson get to be about the right age, actually more accurately than Newman and Redford. And that's who we have. We have Kevin Costner, Woody Harrelson, Kathy Bates um, oh, nice. and John Lee Hancock directing. We shot in Louisiana and Texas. It's going to be kick-ass. Right. It'll be When's it's a it Netflix premiere? original movie. That, um, right now, we're looking at October 19th. That could change. Sure. Um, but it's going to uh, launch on Netflix and in uh, movie theaters at the same time. Oh, that's great. No, I'm excited. That, that, I'm looking forward yeah. to that. John, just just uh, we've got to wrap up time wise, but um, I just wanted to sort of go out, and it's been a fantastic show. Thank oh, you for awesome, being with us. Um, really I just wanted to wrap up with um, paying a uh, tribute to your friend uh, Ju Kun, if I'm saying that correctly. Yeah. Um, do, do you want to quickly tell us about about that and so, the situation there? Yeah, well, well, in that amazing stunt tent on Marco Polo, where we had this diverse group of, of martial artists. The, the main Kung Fu guy I had brought in was Ju Kun, and he had worked for years as Jet Li's stunt double, an amazing martial artist. I was just uh, enamored of, of his style, um, his command of so many different esoteric styles and uh, mastery of Bagua, <clears throat> um, some of the, you know, not only Shaolin, but Wudong styles. <clears throat> and Ju Kun was going to design the Kung Fu system for Hundred Eyes and for uh, for the Chinese martial arts we would see. Um, of course, I brought in the mantis for the villain, Chin Han, the chancellor, who with his crickets and his mantis. Um, but Ju Kun was going to, to be the main Kung Fu guy. So he and I were training in the stunt tent on March 7th, 2014. And as he was walking out, I noticed that our, our production cameraman was walking by. And I flagged him down. I said, can you get a shot of me and Ju Kun together? I want to send it to Jet Li and let him know we're working together again. So Ju Kun and I <clears throat> posed for a photo. Um, the next morning was a Saturday. And I was back in the stunt tent training with just some of the hardcore guys. And um, our stunt coordinator, Brett Chan, who did a marvelous job, he came to me, whispered in my ear while he was stretching me out. He said, did you hear about the Malaysian Airlines planes? He said, no. And he said, the plane's gone missing. Hmm. And he said, and <clears throat> several people from our wardrobe department 
are on it, and so is Ju Kun. And I said, oh, no. And he said Ju Kun was going back to Beijing to check in on some harnesses for our wire work and also to visit his two sons and for the weekend, and he's coming back. So <clears throat> I went over to production headquarters, and I knew something was wrong when I went into the producer's office, and a group of producers and production coordinators were huddled around a laptop, and CNN was on. And <clears throat> this missing Malaysian plane was all over the news. And I went in, and I said, we have people on it. And they said, no, <clears throat> we dodged a bullet. The wardrobe department canceled the trip at the last second. Oh, wow. And I said, yes, but, but Ju Kun is on it, our, our, our martial arts, our co-martial arts choreographer. And they said, oh, shit. And we verified that he was on it. And so that was just traumatic for the crew. We were a couple weeks away from shooting. Um, that Our Chinese stunt crew, um, although Brett Chan oversaw everything, they came with Ju Kun, uh -huh. and he spoke Chinese, and that was kind of their point guy, and suddenly he was gone. And so they were traumatized, and they kind of left to go be with Ju Kun's wife. And the days were going on, and we, we had lost a missing friend, a brother, a martial arts choreographer, um, and we just kept believing we're going to find him. All the guys would come in. They started these prayer sessions in the morning, uh -huh. They said, we know Ju Kun. If it was hijacked, he's going to be the last guy who's going to go down sitting. I mean, he'll kick his way into a sure. cockpit. Someone's taken over the, the plane. And they just believed Ju Kun, he'll swim to an island. He'll survive. Right. And that guy, mm. as time went on, time went on, we started shooting every day. We're just hope, hopefully hopeful. Hopefully we'll find yeah. Today they announced that they are officially giving up the search mm -hmm. for Malaysia. Lines, three seventy. I didn't, yeah, I didn't and, realize it was going on that long. Quite honestly, it's yep. pretty, pretty amazing. Since March, since March eighth, two thousand fourteen. Right. Wow. And we, we lost a great uh, uh, martial arts brother, yes. a treasure trove of wisdom, um, and a guy who we've all we've all watched on the big screen, not knowing it was I him. Know who he was. Yeah. You know, mm. those unsung stunt doubles who could. Uh, who could do do the wild thing? Right, uh, inc incredible um, gravity-defying stuff without wires. <laughs> right now, do, just real quick before we, do you have any thoughts on that? What happened? Do you think it just crashed? Do you think there's any big huge conspiracy thing, or is it just you don't know or you don't care? You just miss your friend. No, it's um, we we went through everything over the months and sure. years. Um, the timing with a lot of the stuff that was happening, um. It's just, you know, kind of strange. No doubt. Um, the, the course that this plane took, this kind of deliberate left turn. Yeah. Mm. Um, the fact that their communication systems shut down. You know, some experienced pilots think that there was a fire with the controls, and then the thing just kept cruising out over the Indian Ocean till it went down. Um, you know, I have a, a sick feeling in the gut there was something more to it than that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, at this point, we're not going to know. We just all hold out hope that someday we find something that gives us gives us more uh, information. It's right. it's tough. Drew Kuhn, he left a wonderful wife, and two boys, um, and he was a young man. Right. Thank mm -hmm. you for the opportunity to contribute. No, no. It's, look, John, thank you so much um, for taking the time to be on uh, Primal Radio. Um, it's been a pleasure having you on here and to know you, you know, for you know, through our martial art brothers and sisters. Um, please come on again in the future. Anything you want to promote or talk about it, we just, I mean, look, I'm looking at the clock going, shit, we can go for a couple more hours. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, you know Jim, I, I want to say one of the things I loved about thinking about the Tim Tackett um, workshops with JKD yeah. is a lot of those people show up bringing their own partners. Right. And so when it's, when it's time to pair off, um, they're all matched up. And those times where I've been standing there, I get Jim McCann, and <laughs> and that's that's always been a real bonus for me because I've learned a lot of stuff from you. Oh, you're well, a beast, man, and uh, enjoy your radio show, all Thank the you, stuff brother. you're doing, and I hope to see you again soon. Tom, great to see you again. Thanks for your interest. 
really appreciate it. All Thanks, right, everybody. John Fusco. John, if people want to get a hold of you or anything like that, I don't know how that works or anything you want to promote outside of the new project, anything you want to pop out there? Yeah. I've got a I've got a blog site blog site wwwjohn fuscocom where I keep a running blog of the stuff I'm working on. Uh-huh. Um, I do have uh, just yesterday I closed a deal on a new martial arts series based on a popular title from the 1980s that I cannot talk about yet. Oh but... shit! Why would you do that to us, man? <laughs> that is so fucking <laughs> cruel. <laughs> it's going to be a big U.S. China co-prod TV shit. series. Um, we're, that we're hoping to raise the bar on martial arts television. I hope so. Um, so we'll keep you posted on that. All right. All right, everybody. Well, John see. Fusco. Uh, this Thank is you. Primal Radio. Peace out, everybody. You have been listening to Primal Radio in association with Primal Gym and Primal Promotions. Primal Radio is available on all good podcast venues. To help us grow, please subscribe, like it, share it, and leave us a great review.